gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. that. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Bravo with the help of special guest, head of communications, Avanta. Only by Bravo. Aaron, how are you? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. We've known each other for a while. Excited to have you on the show today. And what else could we talk about but your love for Bravo and the Bravo cinematic (laughs) multiverse? I I have many formed opinions, and I'm not quite sure what that says about me. I'm going to lean into the positive of that. So uh, before we get into that, tell us a little bit about your role as uh, head of communications at Vanta. Yeah, absolutely. So I joined Vanta a little over a year ago, and I lead our corporate marketing channels as head of communications. So overseeing everything from internal and external communications, content marketing, organic social and analyst relations as well. And, you know, at Vanta, you may be familiar with us. You may have seen one of our friendly llamas, heard a podcast ad, or seen our compliance that doesn't suck too much billboards. But we're really on a mission to secure the internet and protect consumer data. And what we mean by that is, you know, we started five years ago with automating compliance and have since grown into the market-leading trust management platform that really helps simplify and centralize security for organizations of all sizes. So everybody from a small startup to the world's leading enterprises And over 6,000 companies rely on us to help them build and maintain and demonstrate their trust all in a way that's real-time and transparent. So it's been an exciting adventure for me, a new adventure. I got my, my start in the consumer side of tech and have slowly and surely worked my way over to B2B with stints at Zynga, Asana, and now Vanta. That's crazy that I've worked with you in some form or fashion in the past three companies. Yes, I know. Then it's been a, a, a lovely journey. And after five years, you finally convinced me to come out from behind the scenes. I'm such a comms person. I'm I'm my inclination is always behind the camera. I love it. And so why the heck did you pick Bravo to talk about today? Okay. So first of all, a couple things about me. I am an unabashed consumer of coffee, celebrity gossip, shout out to page six, and Bravo. Also Peppa Pig, but I blame my children for that one. I'm Peppa Pig. So when you all, when you finally convinced me to 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 come out from behind the camera, behind the microphone, and ask me what pop culture I wanted to talk about, the only thing I could think of was Bravo. When Ramona walked out, she looked like an alien invaded her body. She walks like a robot with her neck sticking out like a giraffe and her eyes bulging. I mean, it was hysterical. And that told me two things. I think one, there's so much to talk about and so many lessons we can take from it. And two, I literally don't watch anything else. And as I said, I'm not quite sure what that says about me. Maybe I'm a little uncultured and unsophisticated with my viewing habits. But I actually, I'm just going to lean into, I think that that is what makes Bravo so unique. Yeah, and I love talking about interconnected multiverses and all this stuff where, you know, content builds on content and, and personalities build on personalities and all that stuff. So it's fun to, fun to talk about it holistically and what they've built and the power of community. And we're going to get super into that. Meredith, what the heck is Bravo? 
Yeah. So Bravo is a, a TV network, just like HBO and PBS, but it specifically focuses on reality TV. And so shows like Top Chef, The Real Housewives franchise. So they've got like Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Atlanta, Dallas, Dubai, and so on. Later this season on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> Would you ever date a woman? Okay, you brought it up. Let's talk about sex. Oh my God. All right, I'm done. And the show Below Deck and so many more. It's been around since 1980. And when I was looking into the history of it, I was like, whoa, I didn't realize it was that old. And it has an interesting history because it used to focus on specifically independent film and performing arts. And so that was considered like stuff that wasn't meant for like a normal cable network. But sort of the turning point in that was when Queer Eye for the Straight Guy came out in 2003. And that was really like a pivot point for them where they were like, oh my gosh, reality TV is huge and has can get such an audience. So they were like, let's focus on reality TV. And so now its target audience is like 20 to 50 year old women and the LGBTQIA community. And something I found interesting was it's considered like the most gay-friendly network, which I thought was really fascinating. But according to Entertainment Weekly, they say Bravo's quirky reality programming mixes high culture and low scruples to create deliciously addictive television. Love the word scruples, by the way. Um, But I thought that word addictive was kind of what stuck out to me. So I'm like, reality TV is super addictive. And for me, it's The Great British Baking Show. From across Britain, thousands of the best home bakers applied. Good luck. But just 12 have made it. Which is not on Bravo, but also reality TV. And I was like, what makes people want to keep watching? And so I was looking into sort of the psychology of it. Like, Erin, you were like, I don't know what it says about me. But it's really, it is really interesting. Like this cognitive scientist, John Francis Leder, who's from the University College Dublin, said... We innately have two competing drives. One is to be safe and comfortable. So like seated in your house, right? Where you're comfortable. And the other is to enjoy adventure and risk. And he said, while in real life, these can be diametrically opposed, reality TV meets both of them at the same time. So you can kind of experience these situations vicariously through characters and folks on reality TV. Um, And he says that our brains can't really tell the difference between what's real and what's not. So you're kind of like experiencing it with them. And it also edits out the boring part if you were to go and have those experiences yourself. So like anytime they're waiting, any sort of like in-between moments. And then licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Jana Rivani says, we identify with the struggles and triumphs of the people on screen. And that really stood out to me. Erin, we've covered uh, Love Island before on the show. Imagine being marooned on an island with a bunch of hotties. Are you ready, America? Welcome to Love Island, where everyone is coupled from day one. And I had never seen it before, but watching it, it made me feel just so like cringy, like, cause I want the people to do well and to like make their matches and things like that. But when yep. they don't match up, I'm like, Oh God. Cause yeah. we know what it's like when like, we're not the one chosen romantically. Right. Or, you know, you're trying to connect with people and it's just not working. And so it feels like squirmy, but there's like a kind of satisfaction that you've experienced that. And they're also like going through that and you're like, I'm not alone. So that's like a big part of like the psychology behind it too. Oh, one thing I thought was really interesting too was there's a social aspect to it. So you are, you're sort of like connecting socially with the people in the shows, especially if you're not, and not saying whatever, but especially people who like don't feel really connected socially tend to crave watching reality TV more. But Dr. Jana Ravani said that we find that we start liking specific characters in whatever show we're watching. And so we sort of develop this like passive relationship to them and kind of like take sides. Like you might have a favorite character or someone you're specifically rooting for. So you want to know what happens to them and kind of like experience that along with them. So that was a little bit of sort of a psychology behind it. 
I I totally agree with that. I I will say for myself, I am a I am a very low drama person. And I think that there's something so gratifying about experiencing drama, but like that it doesn't involve me directly. So I'm yes. there for it. I get to absorb it, but I, there are no repercussions or ramifications for me in it. Totally. So I'm wondering, Erin, like, has there been a particular show that you've like really become like impassioned for? And like, what was it about that show where you were like, oh, like this has got me hooked? Okay. So before I ha- before I share my favorite shows, I have a theory on what makes good reality shows and why. And like, full disclaimer, just my point of view. I think it's going to be, you know, very counter to some of, you know, what other Bravo-holics, as they're called, uh, I think. But when I think, I think of shows in kind of two different sort of setups. First is shows that have the same cast every season or or thereabouts. So if you think about like Real Housewives or Vanderpump or the, the ones where you see repeat characters for the most part every season. This season on Vanderpump Rules. That's Ariana's side. Sandoval's side over here. Don't go over the line. For your own good, you got to get out and start dating people again. I'm young, hot, single, ready to mingle. The worm is worming. You're going to be friends with him. She's going to cut you off. In my opinion, without a doubt, the best seasons of those series are the first three, maybe four. And I think the reason for that is because in the early seasons, it's all about the chemistry and the authentic storytelling. You don't have these entrenched storylines. You don't have the repetitive fights yet. And I, I would argue, especially, you know, kind of earlier Bravo Housewives and other franchises, these really weren't very well-known names. And so a lot of the times they're really focused on kind of building up their narrative, building up their platform. And there's just like an early days authenticity that I love. Now, where that rule doesn't apply, in my opinion, is on the shows where the cast changes frequently. So like you said, Top Chef, Below Deck... Top Chef has been a dream, and I'm about to take over. This is the most prestigious cooking competition. I feel like I belong here. I'm ready. Your time starts now. I actually argue that those shows tend to get better with time because the production value gets up level. They have new and interesting challenges. Like if you think about Top Chef or even like, you know, you're saying Great British Baking Show. I think the the sort of production element, the challenges, the sort of external parties that are coming in make it new and interesting and different. And producers get better at that over time because they see what works and what doesn't. Um, so that's a long-winded way of me saying I kind of have different criterias for the different shows. But if I had to pick some of my favorites, Real Housewives New York, the original OG first four seasons. I I just I love it so much. I still watch it on demand. To a certain group of people in New York, status is everything. I never feel guilty about being privileged. New York City is my playground. And I think it's because the characters were like, they were larger than life. Their personalities were just so tailor-made for reality TV. And as somebody who is born and raised, never left the West Coast, I loved that like snapshot into New York society, East Coast life. It's so different than what I, you know, kind of grew up around and have been exposed to, which is probably also why I've never really gotten into like Real Housewives or Beverly Hills or the OC, because it's just kind of too close to home. I've, I've, you know, kind of been in and around those areas my whole life. And it's either, you know, too over the top, a little eye-rolly. There's something about it being new and different that I really gravitate towards. I also really, despite what I said about kind of living for some drama, I don't love the shows that focus on tons and tons of fighting or when those fights get repeated. Feels pretty boring after a while. Feels starts to feel very like force and scripted. 
So for that reason, I love things like Below Deck. I love things like Top Chef because there's either the element of like the cooking challenges or service industry and all of these wacky clients that you have to, you know, provide amazing service to on the high seas. In nine years in yachting, I've never refused to take a dish out. I don't know where this attitude's coming from, but he better drop it really quickly because he's the one f***ing up here, not me. Spicy nitrous, really? Um, I just cannot serve that to guests. It's disgusting. Like, I, I just love that it kind of gets new and updated and you're not sort of rehashing the same thing over and over again. One show that actually is, in my opinion, super underrated, but is just a joy is Family Karma. I'm hopeful it comes back. I think it's had four or five seasons. I think it's had four seasons. I just love how authentic it is. There's this like delightful generational element to it where you have sort of younger generations and their older generations and how they kind of think about culture and how it evolves in sort of modern, modern American society. 20% of the world is Indian, so we're here. There's a lot of us. Hello, ladies. None of our families are originally from America. Our families all migrated to Florida. Our parents basically founded this community. They had arranged marriages. We had arranged friendships. It's based in Miami. And like the characters aren't trying to do too much. Like it's just, it's a joyful show for me. Southern Charm, love it. Charleston Special. We have our ways here in terms of being genteel in our customs. There's a small, ruling, entrenched minority of very established old families in Charleston. Really fallen off for me in the last couple of seasons. And it goes back to what I said before. There's that like magic of beginning and authenticity that over time starts to kind of feel a little forced, but I still binge watch the early seasons. And then I do have to shout out for some shows that I think were done a disservice by only having one season. If you're not a, into the Bravo universe, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But Timber Creek Lodge, Real Housewives of D.C., and then this is so random, but Sweet Home, Oklahoma, which is just like super weird out there, but hilarious. And I so, so, so wish the viewership had been there to keep it going. And then I can't talk about favorites without least favorites, which was like hands down worst show I've ever seen, Startup Silicon Valley. Six tech geniuses go for gold in Silicon Valley. One of these companies started within 30 miles of where I'm sitting right now. It's not uncommon to close a multi-million dollar deal and then fix the toilet. Oh my gosh, it was so terrible. And I again, don't even I know, what show is that? Oh, it, it was it. so bad, Ian. It was so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, oh my gosh, I think this was, it was at least 10 years ago at this point. And it was like companies and people you had never heard of. They all hung out at what was deemed like the awesome, cool hangout spot, which was the Four Seasons in Palo Alto, which oh, if yeah. you are here, you know that that is not like where people gather. There was <laughs> one scene where they were having a pool party in San Francisco. How often have you ever been to a pool party? <laughs> San Francisco, famous for its pool parties. Like, famous <laughs> for its 58 degrees pool party. <laughs> so terrible. That's funny. I'd never even heard of that. There, there's uh, a reason. Why. <laughs> well, I think that part of that, you know, from a business perspective, and this is like part of the reason why we created the show is that, is that business is, is inherently like wonderfully fascinating in many ways, but in terms of reality TV, it's actually way more suited for, for scripted, narrative or or documentaries because the inner workings of the startup if you don't make it is really not that interesting usually mm -hmm. um, yes. unless it's someone who already is very famous and then you follow them around but like yep. when we consume business content a lot of times like when the the like a, a regular consumer not like a b2b sort of consumer they want to see successes and failures right they want like epic successes and failures yep. and it's just not really that interesting to just see random people just sort of like trying it, you know? No, no. 
nobody would ever watch a reality TV show about my life. It would be hands down the most boring thing you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I beg to differ. Um, yeah, give yourself some credit. <laughs> okay, so what about like the bro- the broader sort of like Bravo experience yep. that transcends just the individual shows? Yeah, I mean, that to me is the secret sauce of Bravo, right? And that is why I think it's so compelling and it's such like an interesting case study for marketers, for B2B, for community. Like there's so many different ways you can think about it. I think what stands out to me is like, apart from just being just so good at like kind of multi-channel, multi-platform, they were using their website, they were using social so much earlier than other places. They're so good at making the audience feel connected, not just to the shows themselves, but to each other as being fans and kind of integral members of the Bravo universe. Uh, one, like one way that I think that this really comes into play is like, you know, what's the number one thing you want to do after you watch a show that you really like? Well, you want to talk about it. So every night they give you the opportunity to do that with Watch What Happens Live. When Jennifer was last on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, she revealed she was so invested in Bravo programming that she was basically a producer. So here's what. Jen is my colleague and producing partner. I would like to get Finally. your insight on some recent Bravo moments with a round of Bravo. No, she, they didn't. Thoughts on Teddy Mellencamp. Are you a fan? And I think what's really genius about that is the way in which they bring together not just the stars of the show, they'll usually have one or two of them who are just on, you know, whatever the most compelling episode was, come on and talk about it. But they layer in celebrities. So you're you're turning it not just from Bravo, but to more of a pop culture moment. The viewers, the viewers call in, they ask questions, they play along. And then Andy Cohen himself, right? Like he is, I think he was far more involved in the day-to-day before, but he's still really the figurehead and he's still really the the person that kind of ties it all together. He's the thought leader, if you will. Andy Cohen can get anyone to spill their secrets. It's a gift and a curse. How's the soup? Tastes like hot garbage. Why did I say that? Can you take me to Ninth Avenue? There's a body in the trunk. I'm out. Is this a line from Will Call? I've been poisoning my ball. I don't remember my date's name. I'm ball! Even the world's biggest celebrities spill it all. And I don't think that there's anybody else that sort of does that as consistently, as in as engaging, and like in a way that people just keep coming back for more. And I think, it, to, Meredith, to your point of what you were saying, you know, people are seeking social connection. They're seeking to connect with people that like the same things they do. And they build that in to their programming basically every single night, which is just so, so smart. You know, in my world, I think a lot about interconnected comms, obviously, and messages and storylines and narratives. And to me, this is just like what Bravo nails. And it's not just when they do crossovers or spinoffs, but in the way that they kind of bring all of these characters together across the platform. So they've got BravoCon, which is in essence their user conference. Hi, everyone. Welcome to day three of BravoCon. They've got Watch What Happens Live. They have social. You don't just experience these characters and these stories and I'm like once a week in a one hour format and then you forget it. You're you're engaging with them all the time and they've done a really good job of playing that up. And it's funny, we talk about escapism and we talk about like reality TV sort of helping you escape things or I know certainly that's the reason why I like it. I also think one thing they actually do really well that I don't see a lot of other reality shows kind of do is they do recognize sort of the reality that's going on in the world around them. So I don't I don't know if, if either of you ever watched the re- real world. I was like heavy, heavy, heavy early uh, like adopter of the real world. My parents let me watch it, but probably way too young. Um, but <laughs> one thing that was really interesting about the real world and they had designed the show this way was that they didn't have any TVs in the home. 
in like the houses where they had assembled everybody. And the reason they they didn't want to have them was one, they didn't want people sitting around watching TV because that doesn't obviously make for super compelling TV. But they they kind of like like cut them off from some of that real world experience. I would actually say that that sort of does a disservice to making some of the interactions really real because it ignores current events for the most part or what's happening in the world around them. And and I do think that Bravo does a good job of sort of knitting the two together. One one way that this happened, and if you're not a fan of the show, I actually kind of, I, I think it's it's a good way to see this play out is Southern Charm, they were filming in 2020 when COVID hit, when the lockdowns happened, when you know, all of the protests were happening in the wake of George Floyd to the removal of the Confederate statues and, you know, what is traditionally a very conservative state of, of South Carolina. And it was really interesting that it kind of became like this time capsule in a lot of ways where, you know, we all lived through that. It was just three years ago, kind of feels like three decades ago. But it's so interesting to go back and watch sort of how they captured that unfolding in real time. And I, I just don't think you sort of get that slice of reality from a lot of other reality TV shows. Yeah, that part reminds me of a lot of times when we create business content that we created in a silo, like we create a case yep. study in a silo. We create yep. a lot of that stuff without the like, you know, sort of all of the other things that are going on. Whereas if you were to create a case study with all of those other things that are going on, it's like, Hey, yeah, I made this buying decision in, you know, two weeks because I was slammed and I had to have a solution now. And like, you know, they were in the magic quadrant and, you know, X, Y, Z. And I, you know, plugged my nose, pointed my finger and said, that's the one. And then that off we went, you know, like, I mean, nobody would ever tell that story, but, but <laughs> that stuff happens more often than you think. And, and I think, you know, to, to the broader point of like bringing in the outside world is like, that is where. Mm-hmm that the fear that it would stifle what was happening in the real world is actually the opposite that bringing in outside pressures and and interests and all that sort of stuff could actually you know increasing the inputs could actually increase the output yeah and it's uh, you know obviously in, in my world you know thinking about communications kind of nonstop it's such an underrated skill to have and i think to your point, so much content is created in a vacuum and in a silo for a lot of companies. And I always like to go back to nobody sitting around and thinking about us or waiting for our news necessarily, especially as you're you know, growing a company and you're not sort of a, a tech behemoth or consumer behemoth that people sort of wait for these regular news cycles around. And so you do have to make sure that you're being not only cognizant of the world around you and the things that are happening and the, you know, the things that are top of mind for your customers or those that you're hoping to turn into customers. But how are you knitting that story together with the value that you're delivering, what you bring to the table? You know, I I, I think a lot of people falsely just assume that because something is interesting to them as a company or from a product that they're launching, that it's going to be interesting to everyone. And the real magic happens when you marry it to the things that are going on in the world around them. And they, they can really feel that you're, you're connecting that for them. That's really powerful. One of the big marketing takeaways for me is about our guy, Andy Cohen. Hey, Jacob, what's your question? I just think you're so attractive, Andy. And if you ever come to Austin, I would love to take you on another date. I like your voice. <laughs> Maybe I need a Boston 22-year-old. <laughs> Because I think that if you were to look at like what, like we always look for experts in in our B2B content. And I think that that is totally what I, I refer to as the talent, right? Which I think is, is, the, is the right way of doing that. But the synthesis of the information is oftentimes just as important in the presentation and the calming, reassuring presence and those sort of things. And I think that they struck gold with Andy and they struck gold with sticking with him for so long and having him be part of it for so long. And it brings that consistency from show to show. And so many people just feel more comfortable when he's docking, right? And like that is a huge part of, of building you know, a portfolio of content, building out a network, building out 
consistency and brand voice and all that. And a human being can do that way faster than you can do that waving your magic brand wand. Like a human being is, is way, it conveys all that stuff. You know, we use an exercise when we're creating our shows of, you know, like if your podcast was, was sitting at a party, what would they be like? What would their personality be like? Who would be the perfect personality for the show that you want to make? Is it, is it Ryan Reynolds? Is it Andy Cohen? Is it Blake Lively or whoever, right? And I think that that sort of thing is really important to think about is like how to humanize your B2B content. And by doing it with Andy, I think that they've always have, you know, this, this part, this figure in the background that's waiting to come on to tell you to, you know, to synthesize what you just saw. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think a couple things too to layer on there that, that make him so uniquely different than anybody else, you know, that, they probably could have put on the role or certainly to your point of stuck with, you know, he is somebody who is very connected to, to pop culture. If you read any of his, you know, Andy Cohen diaries or now the daddy diaries, now that he's got a couple kids, you know, he has been a kind of fixture in the New York social scene and the celebrity scene for decades but he's done such a great job of weaving in sort of his relationships with the housewives and these different shows and giving people sort of a behind the scenes look, especially in his books, behind the scenes look at how all these shows, you know, come together. He also, in a lot of ways, can sort of play the role, especially if you watch Watch What Happens Live or if you check out anything that, you know, he's done on, you know, BravoCon. He doesn't sort of just give them a free pass. He's a little bit more, you know, journalistic when he interviews them, kind of keeps them honest and authentic or asks the tough questions. And I think about that in the case of marketing and content and communications that consumers are increasingly savvy, software buyers are increasingly savvy, and they don't just want a plug for the company all the time, right? They want to hear sort of, two sides of the the coin or they want to hear sort of the pros and cons. And I think he does a really good job of, of doing that. So it doesn't always feel like this overt sales pitch. Mm, I love that. That's a, it's a great point. I just want, I wonder if, I wonder if more brands took that approach of having a spokesperson, you know, some people, you know, that you have this chief of chief evangelist role, but having a spokesperson for your brand Someone that is connected for a long time, I think, is really smart. We do Snowflake's podcast, and and Steve Ham, who co-wrote the book Rise of the Data Cloud with with their CEO Frank Slutman, and he's been you know the host of their show for a while. Like, not a spokesperson, but per se, or an evangelist, but still just having a steady presence with that. And I think it's I think it's a really smart smart move. And like you said, it gives you insights into what's going on and and other people. I, I think it's uh, they've just done a wonderful job, and Andy's the best. I think it's the right move, but you do have to strike lightning in a bottle. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people that you could plug in, but again, to the point of, of, you know, consumers and buyers being, you know, savvier about things, it's got to be somebody that feels authentic and that feels likable and that you want to kind of tune into and listen to. There's there's so many things that distract us nowadays and so many options. It's a great tactic to have. I think there's probably still a small handful of people that can recreate that magic and keep people coming back for more. So it's like, if you find that amazing, I think it's a little bit harder just to create out of thin air and kind of hope it works. Yeah, agreed. I think you have to really, really focus on finding the right person. Other Marketing lessons from the Bravo universe. Yep. There are so many. <laughs> and again, this is where it was it was like a fun creative rabbit hole to go down to think about this. And I think that the the one thing and you know, B2B, B2C, everybody talks about customer centricity and putting their customers first. This is just something that like Bravo has mastered from the get-go. I think rather than just delivering content and kind of either forcing it to people or hoping they adopt it, you do really sort of feel that sense of like they understand their fan base. They are more and more able to 
get out in front of their wants and needs and, you know, deliver on that. And I think part of that is also just like, you see that come to life in the variety of the things that they put out, but also just the iteration process. I mentioned a couple of the shows that I personally loved that only got one season. And so I was, when I was thinking about this, I actually went back and was looking similar to what Meredith did just to see like how many shows that they had ever put out. And so out of the almost 200 shows that they've ever aired, 118 of those only had one season. So over half of them only had one season. And it doesn't necessarily mean that these were bad shows. You know, maybe it wasn't the right time. Maybe the audience wasn't there. Maybe Aaron Chang was the only one who was watching. But they like they tune and they iterate and they listen to their audience and they try things out. And ultimately, I think that's what makes the programming that does stick around all the more compelling. They also know when to switch it up. They did this recently when they relaunched Real Housewives of New York, I think because sort of that theory I have, right, of like the first few seasons when it's fresh and it's new and it's different and people want to keep coming back for more. What I love about New York is you can be anyone. We are loud, proud, and larger than life. We're all fabulous women, and we don't take no for an answer. I mean, we're ass I'm kidding. We're actually great. We're really great. That's a big lesson a lot of marketers and, you know, just kind of everyone in general can learn about, like, when to take honest stock of things and ask yourself, does this still work? Do we need to mix it up? Is this messaging still feeling compelling and relevant? Or is it not speaking to our audience anymore? And so being really nimble and responsive to what your audience cares about. And then, you know, kind of again to that example of like, and the world around you, how are you taking stock of what's happening and integrating it in a way that feels not forced, but very authentic and meaningful to both the characters, but also those who are consuming the content. And, you know, I think that they, like I said, they just, absolutely saw the value of being multi-channel, multi-platform early on in their journey and have really continued to leverage that in a big way. And, you know, Meredith, like you said, given their demographic of, you know, a lot, you know, predominantly female and, you know, age 25 to 50, these are people who are, you know, spending like myself, arguably perhaps too much, but a lot of time on things like Instagram and, you know, other other channels where they're looking to get their content, they're looking for some escapism. And so being really clear about like which channels are for you, which channels are not for you, and kind of that ruthless prioritization is something that that I think that they have mastered well while being sort of nimble and responsive is it's a hard thing to master and it's a hard thing to sort of continue to keep at the forefront. But I, I do think that so much of their success has really kind of proven that out. Yeah, I mean, there's just, without without social, without all of, all of that other stuff, no doubt it would have been extremely successful. It was successful, you know, in the mid-2000s without a lot of that stuff going on. But it takes it to a whole nother level because you can make these people part of your life, you know, and follow them, follow them along. And you can create FOMO. I mean, right? Like that is the, they, I think this last year, they kind of even up-leveled their, their BravoCon. And I, I didn't go perhaps one day it is a dream of mine. And, but you know, you watch all of these sort of like Bravo fan accounts on Instagram and they're sharing out the videos and they're sharing out all the kind of meet and greets and the people that they have access to. And they just do a really good job of sort of both making you feel a part of it and connected to it. And oof, boy, I could go to Watch What Happens Live or I could go to BravoCon. Like, I feel like I'm missing out by not doing those things. So again, there's like this great balance of you're a part of it and there's even more that you could be experiencing that we would, you know, kind of make available to you. Any other marketing lessons from Bravo? Ah, uh, I, you know, I think my macro is just continuing to watch them actually evolve over time. I think there are new ones. I think that they're going to be doing 
probably a lot of shakeups of some of their franchises, and it'll be interesting to see how they continue to adopt and and how we as marketers can take from from what they've done, even when it feels like, you know, as somebody who works in security, doesn't feel like I should be able to take a lot of, of lessons from Bravo, but I think there's so much more to uncover there. Yeah, I mean, I think I would just, I would just end that portion with, like you said, you know, of 195 shows they've aired, 118 only had one season. And I think, you know, to your point, it doesn't mean that they're bad or or whatever, but their hit rate is actually pretty high. It's pretty incredible, but it's yeah. also, you know, there's a lot of stuff that that gets that gets left. And those shows, you know, break out and break through and some of those are are smash hits, but they want to bring people coming back and there's a lot of different avenues. And I think it's just really unique. And I'd be hard-pressed to find a brand in sort of traditional television. Yeah that is beloved quite like Bravo. I mean, you're really, it's rarefied air with the HBOs of the world. I mean, you take a a channel and a brand like AMC, which has built out a really powerful, you know, brand and programming. I would, I would say it's nowhere in the universe of what Bravo has done. Whereas if Bravo comes out with a new show, there's a lot of people that are interested. If AMC comes out with a new show, it's like, yeah, I'll check it out. I mean, you know, I'll see if it if it's interesting. And I think that that just speaks to it, to the consistent level of quality and to serve their 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 customer base. And I think the longevity of it, right? Like right. that is actually what's really fascinating is you think about these sort of cultural TV sort of traditions, if you will. Growing up, it was TGIF, which is just like the greatest. You know, you had especially for a period of time there, there was sort of like Sunday nights with HBO when Shonda Rhimes had about 50 shows every Thursday night on ABC. It was, you know, they created this whole kind of culture around grab your red wine and your popcorn and get ready for three hours of Shonda TV. Those things have all been really impressive, but they've had a shelf life. You know, they've had a a number of years that they really were very kind of front and center for people and that tapered over time. I We haven't, as far as I believe, we haven't seen that sort of tapering of Bravo. And to me, it, it actually has only gotten kind of stronger and more culturally relevant. And I think that sort of speaks to all the, the inputs that we talked about of just what makes it so remarkable and so unique. Yeah, and I think a huge takeaway for marketers is that building Bravo's brand was done one show at a time. Mm-hmm. It was not building the brand of Bravo. Yep. It was yep. hit after hit after hit after hit. The actual content was good. That's what people, yep. it's like good shows equal a good brand, not the mm-hmm. other way around. And I feel like mm-hmm. so many marketers try to do this, the exact opposite, which is like, yeah. we're going to make a brand that's impactful. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, and it's like, no, make a show that's good. Make mm-hmm. a a you know state of whatever that's good make a tool that's good make marketing that is good on its own and when you keep doing enough of those the brand will come after that not vice versa yeah 100% okay how do you think about content strategy yeah so you know i think for me as we think about you know content strategy i give the example of obviously you know what we're doing at vanta right now which is really to elevate our voice in the market, to tell this connected story, this narrative across different channels, different audiences, but it's all sort of laddering up to these macro themes and these macro messages that we want to to deliver. And, And similar to what we talked about before, right? So much content is done in a vacuum. It's done in a silo. And when I think about content strategy, it all needs to map to something that is greater that is consistent, and that builds on itself. So you can see whether you are an internal employee or an industry analyst or a member of the media or a prospect, you can see how this this story about the product, the company, the vision, the mission is growing and building on itself over time. And I actually think that that's a a lot of the times can be a very underrated or sort of under-tapped 
element to building a content strategy. I think people think about SEO and they think about, you know, clicks downloads and there's there's not enough of sort of that macro narrative, macro storytelling that happens that really is what should be underpinning every piece of content that goes out across any channel. And then you layer onto that things like data trends, sort of editorial themes, executive thought leadership platforms that, again, all continues to sort of build up to that overarching vision. And that takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of sort of self-reflective honesty to also say, like, one, is this message resonating? Two, does anybody care? And if not, what do we need to do differently? How do we need to change this? How do we need to bring people along in this? You know, what do we want them to think and feel and see? And are we making those connection points? And so when I think about strategy, it is really that strategy element of it, of like, do all these things make sense together? Are they building on one another? And of course, do they kind of check the box on some of these metrics that we have? But that should come as a natural evolution of having done that work up front. And ultimately, what you want then is you're creating this flywheel of engaging kind of whether it's top of funnel to, you know, editorial to organic social, you're reaching new audiences, but you're aligning that with your own, you know, kind of company momentum and company trajectory in a way that feels very, you know, fulsome and makes a lot of sense. Um, And I think so often that's kind of seen as that would be the result. And really that needs to be the primary input. How do you think about the ROI of content? So my non-answer here is it really depends on your goal. Content fuels every part of the funnel, right? So you measure the content performance really based on the goal that it's supposed to achieve. If you think about something, especially in our world of corporate marketing, about you know thought leadership, we think about you know what is awareness, share of voice, how how are people able to recall where they've heard about us? They see that that you know compliance that doesn't talk too much billboard on one one as they drove into the city. Did they hear from our CEO at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt on a panel? You know how are we sort of infiltrating? all of the different places that people are and, and how they're thinking about us. And then you, you you know, kind of the other side of that spectrum is what I would call more of the science of marketing, which is, you know, demand generation. It's leads, NQLs, funnel performance, kind of all of those different things. And the beauty of content marketing is that it, it touches all of those, both, you know, sort of the growth and performance marketing, but also the corporate marketing in a way that I think is really unique. And I am, I am so very fortunate to have just such an amazingly talented team at Vanta thinking about all these things and how all the pieces come together. Is a good answer, non-answer. Uh-huh. <laughs> such a comms person with the good non-answer. Okay, last thing, and then we'll get out of here. Just what cool stuff have y'all done in the past year or so, your favorite pieces of content or campaigns and and anything that you're working on excited about coming up? Yeah. So the reason I came to Vanta, you know, as I said, security, brand new territory for me. For a lot of people, I think it can feel boring. It can feel sort of like this, you know, sort of back office procedure that not, you know, not a lot of people know about or really want to read about or talk about. What I loved about Vanta from the early days and especially how we've grown it over the last year is the brand itself. You know, we, you're probably familiar with our mascot. It's a llama. Fun fact, llamas are guard animals. So if you think about protecting data, protecting, you know, consumer interests makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I love that we are a brand and a company that sort of is a knowledge and a trusted advisor, say with a wink, right? Like that it's, it is fun. It is somewhat, you know, cheeky as much as a security company is going to be. And there's so much to sort of play with there. And that's what I've personally always gravitated towards in my career, you know, starting at Zynga and then you know, going somewhere like Asana, which again, it is B2B, but there is there is just, it takes some of that fun and some of the best practices of consumer marketing and consumer PR. And then continuing to do that in my path here at Vanta has been just a really fun and exciting kind of challenge. And we 
have announced a lot of stuff this year. So from a comms perspective, that's been amazing. We've got a lot more coming up, some you know really exciting announcements over the next kind of couple of weeks and months that I can't wait for hopefully everybody listening here to be able to check out as well. But it is just, it's, it's everything we talked about. It's keeping it fresh. It's tuning, it's iterating and really having the the freedom and the space to do that in a creative way just gets me excited every day. Aaron, it has been wonderful chatting with you as always. Thanks so much for sharing all these lessons with our audience. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Thank you for finally convincing me to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to come on board and talk and for letting me talk about Bravo for an hour. Oh my gosh, I could keep it going. <laughs> uh, no, just a plug for checking out Vanta, seeing what we're up to and, you know, feel free to find me on LinkedIn. Let me know your favorite Bravo. Please let me know if you have seen one of my highly underrated favorited Bravo shows and if you agree with my choices. I love it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Aaron. Take care. Thank you. Goodbye, Kyle. Get the f- out of my house. I swear to you, I'm done with it. And line bitches, they can go f- themselves all of them. For Kyle to say that to me, I'm done with it. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.